The Tattle Snivel Bleeder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 4. The Tattle Snivel Bleeder by Charles Dickens. The pen is taken in hand on the present occasion by a private individual, not wholly unaccustomed to literary composition, for the exposure of a conspiracy of a most frightful nature, a conspiracy which, like the deadly upsetry of Java, on which the individual produced a poem in his earlier youth, not wholly devoid of length, which was so flatteringly received, in circles not wholly unaccustomed to form critical opinions, that he was recommended to publish it, and would certainly have carried out the suggestion but for private considerations, not wholly unconnected with expense. The individual who undertakes the exposure of the gigantic conspiracy now to be laid bare in all its hideous deformity is an inhabitant of the town of Tattlesnivel, a lowly inhabitant, it may be, but one who, as an Englishman and a man, will ne'er abase his eyes before the gaudy and the mocking throng. Tattlesnivel stoops to demand no championship from her sons. On an occasion in history, our bluff English monarch, our eighth royal Harry, almost went there, and long ere the periodical in which this exposure will appear had sprung into being, Tattlesnivel had unfurled that standard which yet waves upon her battlements. The standard alluded to is the Tattlesnivel Bleeder, containing the latest intelligence and state of markets, down to the hour of going to press, and presenting a favorable local medium for advertisers, on a graduated scale of charges, considerably diminishing in proportion to the guaranteed number of insertions. It were bootless to expatiate on the host of talent engaged in formidable phalanx to do fealty to the bleeder. Suffice it to select, for present purposes, one of the most gifted and, but for the wide and deep ramifications of an un-English conspiracy, most rising, of the men who are bold Albion's prize. It were needless, after this preamble, to point the finger more directly at the London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder. On the weekly letters of that correspondent, on the flexibility of their English, on the boldness of their grammar, on the originality of their quotations, never to be found as they are printed in any book existing, on the priority of their information, on their intimate acquaintance with the secret thoughts and unexecuted intentions of men, it would ill become the humble Tattlesnubalian who traces these words to dwell. They are graven in the memory. They are on the bleeder's file. Let them be referred to. But, from the infamous, the dark, the subtle conspiracy which spreads its baleful roots throughout the land, and of which the bleeder's London correspondent is the one sole subject, it is the purpose of the lowly Tattlesnubalian who undertakes this revelation to tear the veil. Nor will he shrink from his self-imposed labor, Herculean though it be. The conspiracy begins in the very palace of the sovereign lady of our ocean isle. Leal and loyal as it is to the proud vaunt of the bleeder's readers, one and all to be, the inhabitant who pens this exposure does not personally impeach either Her Majesty the Queen or the illustrious Prince Consort. But some silken-clad smoothers, some purple parasites, some fawners in frivolity, some greedy and begartered ones in gorgeous garments, he does impeach, aye, and wrathfully. Is it asked on what grounds? they shall be stated. The bleeder's London correspondent, in the prosecution of his important inquiries, goes down to Windsor, sends in his card, has a confidential interview with Her Majesty and the illustrious Prince Consort. For a time, the restraints of royalty are thrown aside in the cheerful conversation of the bleeder's London correspondent. 
in his fund of information, in his flow of anecdote, in the atmosphere of his genius. Her Majesty brightens, the illustrious Prince Consort thaws, the cares of state and the conflicts of party are forgotten. Lunch is proposed. Over that unassuming and domestic table, Her Majesty communicates to the Bleeders' London correspondent that it is her intention to send His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, to inspect the top of the Great Pyramid, thinking it likely to improve his acquaintance with the views of the people. Her Majesty further communicates that she has made up her royal mind, and that the Prince Consort has made up his illustrious mind, to the bestowal of the vacant garter, let us say, on Mr. Roebuck. The younger royal children having been introduced at the request of the Bleeders' London correspondent, and having been by him closely observed to present the usual external indications of good health, the happy knot is severed, with a sigh the royal bow is once more strung to its full tension, the bleeder's London correspondent returns to London, writes his letter, and tells the Tattlesnivel bleeder what he knows. All Tattlesnivel reads it, and knows that he knows it. But does the Royal Highness the Prince of Wales ultimately go to the top of the Great Pyramid? Does Mr. Roebuck ultimately get the garter? No. Are the younger royal children even ultimately found to be well? On the contrary, they have, and on that very day had, the measles. Why is this? Because the conspirators against the Bleeders' London correspondent have stepped in with their dark machinations. Because Her Majesty and the Prince Consort are artfully induced to change their minds from north to south, from east to west, immediately after it is known to the conspirators that they have put themselves in communications with the Bleeders' London correspondent. It is now indignantly demanded, by whom are they so tampered with? It is now indignantly demanded, who took the responsibility of concealing the indisposition of those royal children from their royal and illustrious parents, and of bringing them down from their beds, disguised expressly to confound the London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder? Who are these persons, it is again asked? Let not rank and favor protect them. Let the traitors be exhibited in the face of day. Lord John Russell is in this conspiracy. Tell us not that his lordship is a man of too much spirit and honor. Denunciation is hurled against him. The proof? The proof is here. The time is panting for an answer to the question, Will Lord John Russell content to take office under Lord Palmerston? Good. The London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder is in the act of writing his weekly letter, finds himself rather at a loss to settle this question finally, leaves off, puts his hat on, goes down to the lobby of the House of Commons, sends in for Lord John Russell, and has him out. He draws his arm to his lordship, takes him aside, and says, John, will you ever accept office under Palmerston? His lordship replies, I will not. The Bleeder's London correspondent retorts, with the caution such a man is bound to use, John, think again. Say nothing to me rashly. Is there any temper there? His lordship replies calmly, None whatever. After giving him time for reflection, the Bleeder's London correspondent says, Once more, John, let me put a question to you. Will you ever accept office under Palmerston? His lordship answers, Note the exact expressions, Nothing shall induce me ever to accept a seat in a cabinet of which Palmerston is the chief. They part. The London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder finishes his letter and, always being withheld by motives of delicacy from plainly divulging his means of getting accurate information on every subject at first hand, puts it in this passage. Lord John Russell is spoken of, by blunderers, for foreign affairs, but I have the best reasons for assuring your readers that, giving prominence to the exact expressions it will be observed, nothing will ever induce him to accept a seat in a cabinet of which Palmerston is the chief. On this you may implicitly rely. What happens? 
on the very day of the publication of that number of the bleeder the malignity of the conspirators being even manifested in the selection of the day lord john russell takes the foreign office comment were superfluous the people of tattlesnivel will be told have been told that lord john russell is a man of his word he may be on some occasions but when overshadowed by this dark and enormous growth of conspiracy tattlesnivel knows him to be otherwise i happen to be certain deriving my information from a source which cannot be doubted to be authentic wrote the london correspondent the bleeder within the last year that lord john russell bitterly regrets having made that explicit speech of last monday these are not roundabout phrases these are plain words what does lord john russell apparently by accident within eight and forty hours after their diffusion over the civilized globe rises in his place in parliament and unblushingly declares that if the occasion could arise five hundred times for him making that very speech he would make it five hundred times is there no conspiracy here and is this combination against one who would be always right if he were not proved always wrong to be endured in a country that boasts of its freedom and its fairness but the tattlesnivellian who now raises his voice against intolerable oppression may be told that after all this is a political conspiracy he may be told forsooth that mr disraeli's being in it that lord derby's being in it that mr bright's being in it that every home foreign and colonial secretary being in it that every ministry's and every opposition's being in it are but proofs that men will do in politics what they would do in nothing else is this the plea if so the rejoinder is that the mighty conspiracy includes the whole circle of artists of all kind and comprehends all degrees of men down to the worst criminal and the hangman who ends his career for all these are intimately known to the london correspondent of the tattlesnivel bleeder and all these deceive him sir put it to the proof here is the bleeder on the file documentary evidence weeks months before the exhibition of the royal academy the bleeder's london correspondence knows the subjects of all the leading pictures knows what the painters first meant to do knows what they afterwards substituted for what they first meant to do knows what they ought to do and won't do knows what they ought not to do and will do knows to a letter from whom they have commissions knows to a shilling how much they are to be paid now no sooner is each studio clear of the remarkable man to whom each studio occupant has revealed himself as he does not reveal himself to his nearest and dearest bosom friend than conspiracy and fraud begin alfred the great becomes the fairy queen moses viewing the promised land turns out to be moses going to the fair portrait of his grace the archbishop of canterbury is transformed as if by irrelevant enchantment of the dissenting interest into a favorite terrier or cattle grazing and the most extraordinary work of art in the list described by the bleeder is coolly sponged out altogether and asserted never to have had existence at all even in the most shadowy thoughts of its executant this is vile enough but this is not all picture buyers then come forth from their secret positions and creep into their places in the assassin multitude of conspirators mr barring after expressly telling the bleeder's london correspondence that he has bought number thirty nine for one thousand guineas gives it up to someone unknown for a couple of hundred pounds the marquis of lansdowne pretends to have no knowledge whatever of the commissions to which the london correspondent of the bleeder swore him but allows a railway contractor to cut out for half the money similar examples might be multiplied shame shame on these men is this england sir look again at literature the bleeder's london correspondent is not merely acquainted with all the eminent writers but is in possession of the secrets of their souls he is versed in their hidden meanings and references 
sees their manuscripts before publication, and knows the subject and titles of their books when they are not begun. How dare these writers turn upon the eminent man and depart from every intention they have confided to him? How do they justify themselves in entirely altering their manuscripts, changing their titles, and abandoning their subjects? Will they deny, in the face of Tattlesnivel, that they do so? If they had such hardihood, let the file of the bleeder strike them dumb. By their fruits they shall be known. Let their works be compared with the anticipatory letters in the bleeder's London correspondent, and their falsehood and deceit will become manifest as the sun. It will be seen that they do nothing which they stand pledged to the bleeder's correspondence to do. It will be seen that they are among the blackest parties in this black and base conspiracy. It will become apparent, sir, not only as to their public proceedings, but as to their private affairs. The outraged Tattlesnivellian who now drags this infamous combination into the face of day charges those literary persons with making away with their property, imposing on the income tax commissioners, keeping false books, and entering the sham contracts. He accuses them on the unimpeachable faith of the London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder, with whose evidence they will find it impossible to reconcile their own account of any transaction of their lives. The national character is degenerating under the influence of the ramifications of this tremendous conspiracy. Forgery is committed, constantly. A person of note, any sort of person of note, dies. The Bleeder's London correspondence knows what his circumstances are, what his savings are, if any, who his creditors are, all about his children and relations, and, in general, before his body is cold, describes his will. Is that will ever proved? Never! Some other will is substituted, the real instrument destroyed, and this, as has been observed before, is England. Who are the workmen and artificers, enrolled upon the books of this treacherous league? From what funds are they paid, and with what ceremonies are they sworn to secrecy? Are there none such? Observe what follows. A little time ago, the Bleeder's London correspondent had this passage. Bottle Boy is pianoforte playing at St. Januarius's gallery, with pretty tolerable success. He clears three hundred pounds per night. Not bad, this. The builder of St. Jarvis's gallery, plunged to the throat of the conspiracy, met with this piece of news, and observed, with characteristic coarseness, that the Bleeder's London correspondent was a blind ass. Being pressed by a man of spirit to give his reasons for this extraordinary statement, he declared that the gallery, crammed to suffocation, would not hold two hundred pounds, and that its expenses were, probably, at least half what it did hold. The man of spirit, himself a Tattlesnivellian, had the gallery measured within a week from that hour, and it would not hold two hundred pounds. Now, can the poorest capacity doubt that it had been altered in the meantime? And so the conspiracy extends, through every grade of society, down to the condemned criminal in prison, the hangman, and the ordinary. Every famous murderer within the last ten years has desecrated his last moments by falsifying his confidences imparted specially to the London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder. On every such occasion, Mr. Calcott has followed the degrading example and the reverend ordinary, forgetful of his cloth, and mindful only, it would seem, alas, of the conspiracy, has committed himself to some account or other of the criminal's demeanor and conversation, which has been diametrically opposed to the exclusive information of the London correspondent of the bleeder. And this, as have been observed, is merry England. A man of true genius, however, is not easily defeated. The bleeder's London correspondent, probably beginning to suspect the existence of a plot against him, has recently fallen on a new style, which, as being very difficult to countermine, may necessitate the organization of a new conspiracy. One of his masterly letters lately disclosed the adoption of this style, which was remarked with a profound sensation throughout Tattlesnivel, in the following passage. 
Mentioning literary small talk, I may tell you that some new and extraordinary rumors are afloat concerning the conversations I have previously mentioned, alleged to have taken place in the first floor front, situated over the street door, of Mr. Examiner, the poet so well known to your readers, in which Examiner's great uncle, his second son, his butcher, and a corpulent gentleman with one eye universally respected at Kensington, are said not to have been on the most friendly footing. I forbear, however, to pursue this subject further this week, my informant not being able to supply me with exact particulars. But enough, sir. The inhabitant of Tattlesnow, who has taken pen in hand to expose this odious association of unprincipled men against a shining local character, turns from it with disgust and contempt. Let him in few words strip the remaining flimsy covering from the nude object of the conspirators, and his loathsome task is ended. Sir, that object, he contends, is evidently twofold. First, to exhibit the London correspondent of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder in the light of a mischievous blockhead who, by hiring himself out to tell what he cannot possibly know, is as great a public nuisance as a blockhead in a corner can be. Second, to suggest to the men of Tattlesnivel that it does not improve their town to have so much dry rubbish shot there. Now, sir, on both these points Tattlesnivel demands, in accents of thunder, where is the Attorney General? Why doesn't the Times take it up? Is the latter in the conspiracy? It never adopts his views, or quotes him, and incessantly contradicts him. Tattlesnivel, sir, remembering that our forefathers contended with the Normans of Hastings, and bled at a variety of other places that will readily occur to you, demands that its birthright shall not be bartered away for a mess of pottage. Have a care, sir, have a care. Or Tattlesnivel, its idle rifles piled in its scouted streets, may be seen ere long, advancing with its bleeder to the foot of the throne, and demanding redress for this conspiracy from the orbed and sceptred hands of majesty itself. End of the Tattlesnivel Bleeder Recording by Todd